Welcome to Improv, Beat by Beat. I'm Curtis Rutherford. I interviewed a whole bunch of different improvisers and then edited together chunks of those interviews to investigate different aspects of improv one piece at a time. This is episode 15, Forms. This episode is about different forms in general. There are some standard forms that most improvisers know after a couple years. The Herald, the Montage, the Mono Scene, and a couple others. This episode is about the other forms. First, why it's important to learn other forms, and then how those forms get developed. First up is Lily Do. We started off by talking about Vantage Point, which is a class Jackie Jennings taught based off the form also known as Tracers, which Kevin Mullaney taught in New York City based on the show Close Quarters from Chicago. Here's Lily Do. Uh, let's talk, actually let's talk about Vantage Point because okay. I don't know that much about that one. So describe that form. So the form is that every scene takes place at the same time, mm-hmm. at the same kind of macro location. So if it's like the three minutes before midnight at a hotel, every scene uh, that starts is three minutes before midnight. So if somebody sets off a fire alarm in one scene, that fire alarm is going to happen at some point yes, in all the scenes. absolutely. Tracers, I think, is another name. Yeah, 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 tracers. And so like, you would only see characters come back if at some point they've left a scene and that's that form was really nice and challenging because there is this lack of control you just kind of have to free fall and hope that the form and your teammates catch you because if that gun goes off in the first scene and like you don't know why or what it's a lot of unknown and it's a lot of decision making Mm -hmm. and then with an eye always on the bigger picture and also with an eye always on timing. So it challenged me and it satisfied a lot of like the things that I like. Like I like knowing like two minutes in, a gun goes off. And it stresses me out to kind of not know who gets shot and to have it happen in every scene and to just like have someone decide in one scene it's them or it's mm-hmm. not them. And that that's another form like like mono scenes where it's about defying expectations in a calculated way or meeting them. If like a really bad guy is in a dangerous situation and you expect him to be shot and then he's not the one, that's a controlled defiance of expectations. And so what are some of the things that then you stole from Vantage Point that you feel like infused your improv for, say, a Herald or anything else? I think a more willingness to free fall. Yeah. Yeah, and a more willingness to make big choices and and see where they land. And I think there's certain forms that challenge you in that way. I've always heard people say, like, the movie was the most challenging class mm-hmm. they've ever been in because you step out and then you're just labeled and you just have to fulfill it. I actually found the movie... Both easy and very hard because it is you like step out and you're labeled things, which I love. And then it's like, oh, all I have to do is take this on. Mm -hmm. And because it's the analytical part of my brain, it's just like, oh, I know we're doing this type of movie. I have to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I only found it hard kind of in that same way that like with the pattern game, when it felt like somebody was deviating from what I felt the pattern game should be. Yeah. If it was like, I know we are doing a late 90s David Lynch movie, if it felt like the entire group didn't know that, I would get that like, oh no, we're doing it wrong. Yeah, but that's good in a way because it pushes you to like let go. Yeah. Yeah, I like stuff like that where it's like you learn by doing over and over again 
to just live in those mistakes and then to make them less. I don't like a montage because you're able to like shit the bed and just like recuse yourself from it. Mm -hmm. And then you're just like free from your sins. Like that's, I think someone posted a thing once that was like, would you rather watch like a bad Herald for 30 minutes or a bad mono scene? I was like a bad mono scene because you will learn so much more. You have to live in it and you have to figure your way out and then you won't make the same mistakes again. Yeah, that was Lily do. That lack of control is a huge part of what makes different forms fun. You have to turn off the parts of your brain that normally obsess over every part of a scene and instead obsess over the form, which allows a lot of the scene work to happen more unconsciously, relying on the training you've built up. Next up is Chris Scott. We talk about creating several different forms here. I bring up Iggins, a Herald team that did a season finale form in which they improvised the season finale of a long-running, completely invented show. Chris also brings up The Serling, a team that Sean O'Reilly created and asked me to direct and to help create a form based on The Twilight Zone. Here's Chris Scott. So then talking about forms, so like I think of a lot of openings as like, and I think this is kind of the standard of like pattern game is the like er opening, right? Is the like archetype. And there's problems with that. And yeah, I think different things, but like it works as like if you know pattern game, I can use that metaphor easily to transpose the, it to other openings. The idea of sharing ideas and building on each other. and Exactly. Right, yeah. Do you do any with forms? Like, especially when you're inventing yeah. a new form with yeah. the team. Does it change? Like, oh, I, do you have any of Yeah, it so depends on what they're looking for. Because you want, I feel like the opening, when you're doing a form, and usually forms, when people are, when teams are coming to me and saying, we want to do a specific form, I'm doing Twilight Zone right. with you. They're going for a very specific goal. Not necessarily, we want to do something abstract that right. can suit to numerous things. So it's then trying to find a form, an opening that fits the genre mm-hmm. or the scenario, and then tweak from there right. to make it useful. But usually I start from either, not necessarily pattern game, but I will start from character living room okay. as my first as yeah. thing, or like a doc sort of thing, mm-hmm. characters talking, everybody together, I try to get everybody out there as the like base idea to start. Or something along the lines of, I don't know, scene painting, maybe, mm-hmm. if it's more narrative. But then, like, the more abstracted openings, like Pattern Game sure. or Invocation, it would be hard for me to think of, like, coming to a, developing a form where I would come across the Invocation. Right, exactly, something. yeah. Uh, Unless, like, Dell, you were, like, right, insanely right, tripped right, out on right, whatever the fuck you right. were on. And I might, like, I'd come up with some weird things to have people do. But usually it's actually like just branching off, like doing the living room, but you have to pretend like you're an elevator. Right. Just so you stop riffing on each other and can't look each other in the eyes. Yeah. Even if it's like, you know what, guys, I've always wanted to do a mono scene set in the Lord of the Rings universe. Right. I don't want to see it, but great. That's what you want to do? Hey, everybody, let's jump on board and do it. Yeah. I know it's a little bit of pre-prov. Mm-hmm. The person who wanted to do that, we are not going to do what they're picturing in their head. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. But it's going to be, yeah. And it gives a start to then start adjusting. Yeah, let's and yeah, let's start doing that. Let's playing with it. Let's let's find what's difficult. Let's find what's really fun. Yeah. And why is that fun? And let's do more of that and yeah. put that into our tool belt as something new. Uh, at one point while I was coaching Iggins, we were talking about the Final Destination movies during yeah. a break, and we and then it was like, wait, let's make a form of that. Yeah. Just because it's so like formulaic. Yeah. It's like okay, you introduce the characters, yeah. and then every scene is just 
introduce the way they're going to die. They don't die like that. They die in a different way. Right. And that's it. Yes. And it was very, very fun, especially because they're a very physical team. And so it was a lot of like... The like mousetrap style, um, um, uh, Rube Goldberg, the Rube device. Goldberg, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. of yeah. like somebody dying. Yeah. Um, and at the end, we did it a couple times, and then Casey Jones pointed out, like, oh, this is not that different from the season finale. And it was like, yeah, it's just season finale with a different thing, yeah, yeah, sure. But like, starting to do that was kind of like, a, oh, how can we, what can we steal from it and yeah. change? Yeah, and I think like, so often people are like, oh, we have to stumble into. New right. exciting things. We have to if we're gonna have like this amazing set that breaks the rules or plays with improv in a new way. Right. Yeah, it's great when it happens organically. It's amazing, but you also have, you have to, to right try it other ways. If we're always trying to do the base yeah. thing without without like pushing and kind of like oh this is an idea let's try it. It's a little bit like hearing the story of how penicillin was discovered and saying, I guess let's just let's make that accidents. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's just do all science, science is accidents. Right, yeah. penicillin was great. Yeah. The reason why it was great was, no, the reason why it's great is because it cures people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't cure people. It kills antibiotics. It I don't know. I don't know how science works. It cures people. people. That was Chris Scott. Up next is Kevin Mullaney. We were talking about creating an improv show as a whole. Here's Kevin. So you're casting something you've got like... Eight people who have come from various different theater backgrounds. If you have to give them the, this is kind of the baseline of the way I'm going to present things, right? This is how I'm going to refer to game. This is how I'm going to refer to whatever. What do you feel are like in the innate or, or what are some of the foundational improv things that you would then present to them just to make sure that everybody's thinking of it the same way? It depends a lot on the show. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I did a few shows that had a lot in common with, say, ASCAT or mm -hmm. other monologue deconstruction shows, you know, where we would have either someone being interviewed or, uh, you know, some other source material and then create games and scenes mm -hmm. from it. So in, the, in, in, in that process, I was spending an awful lot of time just figuring out how to uh, make good initiations. You know, what made a good initi initiation for that kind of form? How to pull unusual, funny ideas from source material and then apply those to new situations and then getting people to practice that and then just sort of letting the improv take care of itself. When I'm directing, a lot of what I have to let go of is the idea that I'm teaching anyone. It's not my job to teach people in a directing situation, in a directorial situation. It's my job to be a surrogate audience member and to let them know what it is that's missing or when things go horribly wrong, but not necessarily to teach them. Now, in some cases, you know, uh, like the show I was just talking about where it was very much like a monologue deconstruction, I, I did feel like I needed to get them on the same page. But after that point, a lot of the notes were, we're getting too fast, we're piling on, we need to slow down. Or I needed to change the show in some way to get people to slow down and change the way mm -hmm. they improvise. Um, so, for instance, at one point we changed the monologue deconstruction to what, what I was calling a, a post-it deconstruction. Okay. Um, and basically it was someone was telling a story, or I guess they were reading... Uh, source material from a book and that we would have people on the sides jotting down things just words and phrases from the source material on a poster note and putting that on a board and then 
very much like a second city will sometimes do this as well. People just would take a a post-it note off the board, read it as if it's a suggestion for a scene, and then do a new scene. And that was very useful for us to get lots of ideas out of Mm -hmm. of a monologue instead of burning up the two or three best ideas and then not knowing what to do. Also, is there any, like, form or something that you've kind of, like, I want to bring this into improv, but I I haven't cracked it yet? Well, the thing we're working on right now is very interesting to me along those lines because it it ties into something I've been wanting to do for years. Mm -hmm. So, So years ago, after watching the movie Dark City, I started thinking about movies that inhabit weird universes where everything is feels kind of the same as our world except something is different sometimes it's very different and very obviously different um, something like pleasantville and uh, sometimes it's subtly different at least at first like in the matrix where it's sort of like there's something strange about this world but but uh, it takes a while for the characters to figure out what it is it's it's a lot of sci-fi it works like that yeah and so I would do this exercise with people where I'd talk a little bit about these kinds, of, these kinds of movies, these movies with weird worlds to them, and we would try to improvise scenes within those weird worlds. I think the, for me the key was that it, besides the protagonist, nobody else questions what's going on. Everybody thinks this is how the world is supposed to be, and that's important. So like improvising scenes, not constantly questioning this mm-hmm. weird thing. You know, we're in a world with robots who, who are, you know, who dress us in the morning. That's just part of the world. And it happens, but we don't need to question it. And then I started working on this show recently uh, called Improvised Black Mirror. So I played with this for a long time, never really got it into a show. Mm-hmm. And now we're working on it right now. And it's, it's really hard. It's really challenging. Because... <laughs> Like, I, I, I once directed a team to do an improvised, like, Twilight Zone thing, and with that you have the advantage, at least, of a Rod Serling character can f- come forward and state, hey, this is why this world is weird. Even after the protagonist has also said, oh, why, oh, you know, why are these robots dressing us? Um, <laughs> but with, like, a Black Mirror type thing, you never have that. Or, and with a lot of sci-fi, because they have the advantage of they can either reveal it slowly or... It's maybe some a more like subtle difference that is being speculated upon. So it seems like harder if you don't have some very direct. This is what is weird about the world. Yeah, is that something? Then are they like developing it within the first couple scenes? Is it like something that's like presented to the audience, or like how do they discover what that weird thing is? Well, I did something I didn't think I would do, which was added an opening where mm-hmm. they sort of delve into things they're thinking about, things that are giving them anxiety or their hopes for the future, and then somebody essentially states the premise of the episode that they're about to improvise. I found it it was very difficult for them to sort of figure it out. And not so much because it's a difficult thing to figure out. It's because there's so many other things they have to worry about at the same time. Yeah. The other thing that Black Mirror is is that it's really good storytelling. You know, there's very clear protagonists with clear goals and they go through these series of, of events that slowly ratchet up the absurdity or, mm-hmm. the, you know, that slowly heighten. And that's really hard to do. So doing that at the same time as coming up with these incredible premises for episodes of Black Mirror and then, you know, converting that to a story all at once is, is, is difficult. It's hard. Yeah. We're finally going to get that on its feet in front of an audience. We've been rehearsing that for four months, so... 
I'm excited to see because I think now it's it's almost like I can't give them very much more until we do it in front of an audience. Yeah. And when we do it in front of an audience, then it'll I think they'll learn a lot. Right. It's that hard part you mentioned a director being like an audience of one. Now it's like okay, you've heard everything I have to say. What does everybody else think, and how do we how do we adjust it? Also, for when probably they're hearing laughs of an entire audience, and sure, going yeah. too quickly. Too I think slowly. it'll be much easier to realize what it is that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also tricky because we're not trying to be comedic. Sure, is going to be a fair amount of comedy in it, I'm sure. But we've kind of stepped away from the idea that we're parodying it and we're really trying to emulate it, and so. We'll see, though. I mean, yeah. a lot of the times what happens with a show like that is you start out with that kind of goal of we're going to emulate it. We're not going to make fun of it. We're not going to parody it. We're going to pay homage to it. Right. And then it slowly becomes kind of a parody. Or once it, you know, it's so hard, once the audience starts laughing at something, to resist that yeah. temptation. With a lot of these scenes, it also seems like it's the, or with a lot of these forms, it feels like that kind of the four minute mile thing of, you mentioned like an hour long two person scene now seems like not crazy, but it's like once that kind of threshold has been broken, it feels like a lot easier of like to start to pick apart those pieces and, oh, this is what improvised Black Mirror would be 10 years down the road because we've already done it enough times that we can kind of sort through a lot more. Oh, so actually with, like, are there any forms that you then return to like Monocene and you realized, I wish I'd done, or now I think we should do a lot more of blank in that form. Yeah. Well, I've returned to the idea of improvised plays quite a bit. I'm yeah. not really sure what that means, <laughs> you know, because why, you know, what would that be different than the other kinds of things we do? Right. How is that essentially different? But it does put people in a different frame of mind. I think for one thing that I shied away from for many years was was focusing too much on story and worrying very much about story. But I think, um, like anything else, um, you can be trained to tell good stories, to make up good stories on the spot. It's not something that should be avoided at all costs. Maybe in certain forms. I mean, story doesn't have much place in Harold. Doesn't have much place at all in something like Ascat, for instance, and a lot of improv. But there definitely is a way to, to tell stories in improvisation and to get better at them, uh, which I think I'm embracing more. Mm-hmm. So I think I would have liked to experiment with that earlier because it, it is something that I think is very hard but definitely can be done. Oh, there was another, there was a, something I wanted to try yeah. for years and I've never okay. had it. So maybe if I say it out loud, maybe some other more dedicated, young, crazy Herald team will go, oh, let's try that. Uh, years ago, I had a team and uh, that I was coaching, and I had done this course on tape, on cassette tapes. This is how old this is. And it was called Mega Memory. Okay. Um, anybody over the age of 40 probably remember this because it was, it was on uh, TV all the time, you know. And it was this guy who promised you could, you'll remember everything. And basically what he was teaching was uh, sort of memory palace kinds of techniques. Right or body peg techniques, or various, you know, well-defined techniques of how to remember things. And one of the exercises was this exercise where it was like a series of absurd jumps. So you have, you're sitting in a red Corvette. Madonna is sitting next to you. She's wearing a snakeskin tuxedo. Mm -hmm. In her lap is a purple kitten 
Uh, the purple kitten is smoking a cigarette. And so you're creating this series of absurd visual mm-hmm. ideas by, by marrying things together that don't fit. In a way, it's kind of like an a, to, a visual A to C, mm-hmm. you know? And you're picturing it as you go along. So everybody as a group, you're doing, you know, the exercise is that if you had um, 40 things to memorize, that you could connect them in this way of of connecting, you know, one of them has to do with the the car, another has to do with Madonna, another one has to do with the purple uh, cat, and so on. But you could do this as an opening as well, where every move of the opening, everything that someone said was a absurd not even A to C, it's like A to M, mm-hmm. uh, move, marrying two things visually and then marrying a new thing to the new thing and a new thing to the new thing. And what could happen if people got good at it, and I think it wouldn't be too hard, is that they would me- essentially memorize the whole opening. Right. So they would do the opening, and it would, the opening would be crazy. It would not make any sense. But they would remember everything from it, so they would sprinkle stuff throughout the show with stuff from the opening and then at the end of the show they would redo the opening mm-hmm. word for word maybe even with showing like things that inspired it so you right. do, redo the opening and then people would say a line from the show that was inspired by it, another one and i just thought that would be really mind-blowing for the audience they'd yeah. be like what the hell they, how could they possibly remember all this and of course most people would think they were cheating somehow right. but I the mega memory opening yeah I've coached a couple people who can't, who don't see things visually in their head. And so I've had to like, because I think a lot of memory palace type stuff for remembering openings. And so I had to like readjust how I tell people to remember things from like pattern game in the opening because they like literally won't see a picture in their head. Really? So like that memory palace style of like memorizing that they, they just can't do. And so they had to replace it with like aural cues or interesting actual like uh word cues yeah i mean it's apparently like i don't know one percent of people or five percent of people right. something like that uh have some version of that even when you tell them like just manufacture a picture and then force it together with something else in some they can violent the or words. absurd crazy way they just can't do it yeah that's interesting they can say the words like they could say oh okay well this is madonna in a, in a you know a snakeskin tuxedo but they're not they're not visual. picturing madonna with that purple cat on her lap smoking the cigar yeah it's just like one of those weird things that comes up where there's always that variation of oh this doesn't work for you this works well for you this doesn't work for you mega memory that would be yeah i don't remember what else i was going to say about that that kevin trudeau was the guy who sold it and he was a scam artist okay uh, and I think he was, I don't know if he went to prison, but he was convicted of fraud, I'm pretty sure. You might want to edit that out in case, in case it's not true. But he definitely got in trouble for right. his, his methods of, of selling crap to people. That was Kevin Mullaney. Kevin Trudeau is currently serving a 10-year sentence in Alabama after his conviction for criminal contempt. A lot of directing any improv show and working on forms is making tiny adjustments, figuring out what does and doesn't work, and then tailoring the form to the group of people performing it. Finally, here's Kevin Hines. Kevin has taught many different advanced study performance classes at UCB New York, often around forms that he has created and developed. A couple times in this interview, he'll mention Code Red, which is a team that Kevin coached as a sort of workshop for trying out different ideas. Here's Kevin. So I want to talk first about forms, 
right? Because okay. you have you've taught or developed a bunch of different forms, right? So I want to talk about first off, how do you come up with forms and then how do you kind of like develop them into this is something I want to run as a class and then on stage? So I like I like different forms. I've always enjoyed the teachers that have come up with different forms when I was coming up. And as an administrator now, I'm always hoping people will pitch brand new forms more than doing a form that's been done uh, even only a handful of times. I'm, I'm most excited when it's like, I have an idea for a form. I don't know how it will work. I get mm-hmm. very excited. So you're always kind of hoping people pitch more yes. new forms. Yeah. Uh, so I love it when people pitch new forms. That's just what interests me. I think it's exciting. I don't know if it's true for all students. The way I teach is the way I want to be taught mm-hmm. in that I get excited when it seems like I'm, as an experienced improviser, I'm, I get excited when I'm in on, in on it with the teacher. Like, right. we're doing this together. We might discover something. Uh, there are rules that you might throw out and that sort of stuff. So when I teach those classes, I get very excited uh, about that aspect of it. Which it's, was very fun about, like, the first macro scene class. Right. That feeling, I mean, that was, I think, my second ASP. Yeah. And so that feeling of, oh, we're all in this together. Kevin, like, has this idea, but yeah. you're pushing us in different ways, and we're kind of adjusting as we go. It's was great. very fun. Yeah. And so the macro scene was the first new form class I taught that hadn't that I hadn't taught before. And I think that had started in a practice group that was pretty good. It wasn't a great practice group. It was pretty good though. There's some really good people in it. It was a practice group. And I was bored of just having them do heralds all the time. And I still wanted them to do heralds. I think that's important. But I wanted to try some other things and work some muscles. And Fwand had done uh my herald team, Fwand had done some mono scene second beats basically, where our second beats all took place in one mono scene so we were all at a baseball game in different parts of the baseball game we were all on stage at the same time but there was something about that i liked or we would be all at the park but we wouldn't all be on stage at the same time we did a couple of things like that i was like oh that was like really fun way to connect these scenes just spatially what if i just did that and so i try it when i used to coach a lot i would just try those things with groups i coached i'd be like hey can we just try something and i would do it and i would watch it i'd be like oh let's do it for 30 minutes there's something there and that's basically it It would be like i like this one mechanism Mm -hmm. and almost all my forms come down to one thing yeah and so the macro scene was just the transitions just like i like the idea of real-time mono scenes but i also like the idea of going to a new location so what if we followed the person walking and so it sort of came out of just like we're all at the park but i didn't want to all be at the same part of the park It, it always feels weird when you start a mono scene and you're at a baseball diamond, and, and people have to walk on the baseball diamond and be like, I'm the park ranger. Yeah. Like, oh, wouldn't he be doing something somewhere else? Well, we're sort of stuck here, so yeah. he has to come in and do his thing. So I was like, let's just walk somewhere else without losing the mono scene. But yeah, it started as a practice group thing, and I did it long enough with them to say, like, this could work if I had a great group, mm-hmm. which is perfect for our advanced classes. Uh, where you get to select students and you get the best of the best. So the macro scene was great that way. But uh, I don't know if you remember, but even in that class, I think very early on, and people asked me, how do we end this? And I was like, oh, I don't know how it ends. Yeah. How fast should it go? I was like, I don't know yet. Uh, and we learned that as we went on, like when was too soon to call back a character, how long it felt right to follow a character. Like I don't even have set rules for that now. You just do a few and you get the feel for it. Yeah. And we never really learned how to end it other than have a big moment. Yeah. Which and is mo- true of most improv. Sure. Really. I mean, but I think because of the Herald is such a set ending. Yeah. Uh, you feel like, oh, there should be a way to end this. This is such a 
specific form, you have such an idea. How do you know when it's over? It's like, eh, around 25 minutes, right. you, you're, it's going to be over, so find a way to end it. But we were figuring that out in the class, and you guys ought to often ask me questions, and my answer would be like, I don't know yet. Let's find out. Let's run some more with that in mind. And like Convergence was the same way. I think it was something I initially tried with Sandino mm-hmm. at the end of a rehearsal. Uh, Convergence is where I do two mono scenes. Uh, we, inter- we switch back and forth between them. They're unrelated. But as the set goes on, we find out they're related. Mm-hmm. And I think with them, I just said, I want you guys to do you four on this mono scene, you four on this mono scene. We'll edit back and forth between them. I didn't say they should be connected. Right. I just like, I want to see what happens if I have this really talented group do this. And very quickly, they realized it was fun to have them be connected. I think one was people working on a volcano and one was a school classroom. And then when the volcano erupted, the kids in the classroom all ran to the window. And I was like, right. oh, yeah, of course they're affecting each other. It's stupid if they don't. Uh, and then when I would run it, I'd be like, these should affect each other eventually, yeah. <laughs> I was, as if that was always my plan. And it eventually became a class that uh, was really fun. And so you, you think more in terms of the kind of like improv mechanisms of this is how it's transitioning? Because they're yeah. also very visual forms. Right. They're very – I picture how they look on stage mm-hmm. very much. Uh, so the mono scenes was was – yeah, it was just – I want to see these two mono scenes. What happens if we – the mono scene is such a pure form. Mm-hmm. It's just one long scene. It's so great. It is probably the most pure long form improv. Right. No multiple scenes. You can have multiple characters, but it's just it's a one act play. Yeah. But uh, when does it end? Yeah, exactly. And it's improvised, and it's so beautiful. It's so it's the furthest thing from short form. So mm-hmm. I keep trying to break that and make it more into short form, I guess. But it, so it inspires me. So I want to see this mono scene if I do other things with it. Yeah. So the macro scene was that. Let's see a mono scene where we can move. Mm-hmm. The convergence is let's see two mono scenes. Because my pitch to that, I think, to the class was it's as if a little bit it should feel like these could be separate shows. And right. then someone after, the, after they watch them are like, these two shows should be edited together. Which isn't 100% true because by the end they have to be connected. Yeah. But for a long time it just sort of feels like. Like they're sort of connected. There's this moment that sort of connects. Right. And by the end, you're like, oh, no, this, this is a show. Right. And I was just, like, excited by that, that discovery for that one. It was like, oh, that moment when you realize, why are we seeing these two scenes? So, like, in a Herald, you see three scenes. There's never a point in that show where you go, why these three scenes? Yeah. Even though they all connect, mm-hmm. they all come from the suggestion, you know why you're seeing them most likely. But for this, it was like, why... What what do these two have in common? You live in that anticipation for the first like 10, 15 minutes of yeah. the show of just seeing slowly threads connect. Right. For but me, you don't know that, for a fact. Yeah, for me, that's 100% what that is. And recently I did the Overachievers mm-hmm. form. Did you get a chance to see that? I saw it, yeah. Great. I love when you're a smart improviser. I went smart improviser see it. I think we talked a little bit about yeah, it. Yeah, because that was one where it was like, oh, fuck, I should have taken this class. Yeah. Um, so the Overachiever was just, I like the idea of ghosting, uh-huh. which was an exercise I did with Michael Delaney. Back in 2000, where we did a couple scenes with ghosting, which is where there's two groups of people on stage at the same time in the same location at different time periods. So, you know, there's a, a mother and her daughter uh, in a bedroom, and then there is um, a man and a real estate agent years later looking at this room. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same room, uh, same space, at different, different times. times. And it was just an exercise. And I remember in that class, someone said, "When would you use this in an improv set?" To Delaney, and he goes, mm-hmm. "Oh, you probably wouldn't." He's like, "It's a cool, it's a cool theater, right?" 
but it's more of an exercise and just like playing smart because conveying that at the like in the moment would be so difficult it's so confusing and most of what you get out of it could be done with two scenes Mm -hmm. done separate like if the fun of it is that it's the same location and Mm -hmm. discovering what the second scene does with it you can do that as two scenes or even editing back and forth between the two scenes right like with tags you could get so much of it out so really what the overachiever was for me was "Ah, is there anything though that you couldn't get yeah Otherwise, and we also increased it to have three scenes on stage at the same time. And that's why it was called The Overachiever. And it was a form I came up with with other people. Hunter Nelson was a big help. A lot Mm -hmm. of the Code Red uh, group that I worked with helped come up with this. But yeah, I think it was my initial germ. I was like, I want to do something with ghosting. And part of it was like, it's hard on purpose. Right. Some of it, it was definitely a form for students in the sense that like an audience watching that would be like, Oh, it was funny. Why was it so complicated? Right. And the answer is it didn't need to be probably. Or like it did for two. I think I said to the class, if we have two moments that could only be done because it was this complicated, mm-hmm. I'm very happy with a set. And we gen- tended to have a few moments like that in any set. When they happened, it was just such a thrill. Right. You know, I guess it'd be like a filmmaker filming, uh, you know, when they, they do this once in a while, like one cut, uncut right. movie. Why do that? You don't gain anything by that other than it's impressive. Mm-hmm. And for most audiences who aren't thinking about it, they don't notice. Yeah. Uh, I honestly watched Birdman, and it was like two-thirds of the way through before I realized it was simulating a, an uncut right. yeah. one-shot. And that's something I'm into. And it was two-thirds of the way through the movie, and I was like, oh, yeah, they're not cutting. Yeah. Uh, because if it's done well, it just feels like, yeah. oh, you've changed the tone. Yeah. Like Children of Men is that same thing of there's the one long cut that everybody talks about. Yeah. I went back and rewatched it a couple of years ago, and it's like, oh, there's so many very long cuts that just give you that feel of just this long, arduous journey. And I think to some extent, it's lost on most people Mm -hmm. because they're just watching it as a movie. And if you catch it, it's like, oh, this is an impressive thing, but I might have enjoyed it just as much if it didn't happen. Like, Red Band, I think, is a good movie. Children's Men's a great movie. The Hitchcock movie, Rope, is a pretty good movie. Mm -hmm. The gimmicks don't add to the movie other than you're like, ooh. Right. Cool. I, a little bit, I guess, they're supposed to make it feel, uh, help you lose yourself in it. Sure. But I don't know if that really happens. I don't have trouble yeah. losing myself in movies. And sometimes it takes you yeah. out if you're observant of that, of like, oh, I yeah. see what they're doing. But I think with this, it does add something also to, I think, like, as creators, we're problem solvers more than anything else. Yeah. Of like, and giving us that limitation oh, I need to do this right. in one shot. And we talked about this after the macro scene of like, why are so many of the ce- why were so many of the scenes instantly funny? Yeah. Because we always had that feeling of like being, being on our toes of like, oh shit, they just started a scene in the freezer. Uh, I guess me and Rob are in the freezer. Let's figure something out. Right. Uh, that's a great word to use as limitation. I think that, that a lot of forms are a limitation. Uh, whether you're talking about the Herald, which has a lot of limitations, or mono scenes, which has a... Very strong limitation. Documentaries, the movie. There's limitations to all these forms. And then the fun is figuring out how to not let that hinder you mm-hmm. and let it let you do anything. I, you know, you watch Netflix shows now where they don't have to, they can be any length. They might be binge watched. There's yeah. no commercial breaks. And for some, I think, creators, that hurts them. They did better when they were forced to keep their shows shorter. I think uh, Joss Whedon is a lot like that, where it's like Buffy, he had very yeah. limited budget. He had this like 
crappy yeah. network. And he had to make, I think, a better show than when they were just like, here's a bunch of money, make a movie, do anything you want. Right. And the classic example of Jaws, where the shark yeah. didn't work, so they made a scarier movie because they were like, how do we scare people without showing the shark? Mm-hmm. And by doing that, it was scarier. They had to limit themselves. They didn't know that. Spielberg, he's a pretty good director. It probably would have worked out anyway. Sure. But limitations help you. And so, like, that's where CGI sometimes can be a problem movies, where it's like mm-hmm. The Hobbit versus Lord of the Rings, right. where they didn't use models. So they weren't limited to how they shot around certain sets. Mm-hmm. Those limitations made Lord of the Rings feel better. Yeah. Because, you know, they made them make more creative choices yeah. in how they made that film. So limitations, I think, are a huge part of it. So. Yeah, I think that seeing how smart improvisers work around those limitations is really fun for me. And seeing how students, especially students who haven't done anything like this for the first time, learn that even though I gave them all these rules, I don't know what I'm talking about. And that every now and then they need to just ignore me. Right. It's very fun. You're someone who's done a lot of improv. You've been in Heralds and you've probably done Heralds where you're like, oh, I can't do this. And now you're probably at a point where you do heralds and you're like, well, I'm just going to do yeah. it and we'll figure out how to make it work. Yeah. This isn't typically what you should do for this form, but I want to do it. Part of that maybe was because I was on a team that broke the rules. Mm-hmm. Juan broke all the rules, but they were still heralds at the end of the day. Part of it was like watching people like Billy Merritt pitch new form after new form after new form or being jealous of my friends who did classes that were new forms. I'd mm-hmm. be like, oh, this is so interesting. So a lot of it just comes from that, where I was like, oh, I want to, I want to experience that yeah. feeling. And I'm a control freak, so it's nice to be the teacher of those classes sure. so that at the end of the day, I still get to say, this is the form, this is not the form. Right. So a little bit, there's that aspect. With the limitations thing, and I think from the other side, when you're in it, focusing on those limitations, yeah. both, when you see, both from like me doing any weird form and from watching other people do it, they just do better improv so much of the time. Right. There are teams where it's like, I'll do like the macro scene with people or with uh, Foxhole when I was coaching them, I was working on like, oh, could we do a macro scene herald? And when we would do it in practice, it was often some of their best heralds because they weren't like, are we playing game? What's the game? What's right. the game? They know game. They know the fucking herald. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a, a great point. Like I, I, when I do it as exercises for indie groups, that's sort of my idea. It's like by focusing on this, you're not worried about all the things that should be natural to you. Mm-hmm. And if you're good, they'll come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why you'll do exercises where you might tell a student, every scene has to be initiated with the last line of the previous scene. Right. It's a fun trick, and it, I, I think it does make good scenes, but it mostly is because they're so just thinking about how do I make that line work now? They didn't make any decisions. Now they have to just adapt and roll with mm-hmm. it. So their, Im- their skills actually come out <laughs> right. instead of like trying to force this funny scene that they decided on their back line. It's great for heady players Yeah, that I was definitely at one point, someone who would just like plan his scenes out. Take it away so that I can't plan. Mm-hmm. My favorite improvising that I do and that I watch is people who are thrown for a loop that are surprised that don't know what's going on yeah. and have to adapt. Yeah. Uh, which is where real Dormano scene sort of came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something I developed with Code Red. And I don't know if it came up in a rehearsal, but I thought of it at some point and I made them do it where I was just watching a mono scene. And the, and the idea of people walking in and being so, the characters being surprised by what's going on, that artifice yeah. of like walking in and saying something that you know will get a reaction off your scene partner. It works and it's yeah. very funny. It's what happens in a written play. It's 100% how it should work. But I was like, oh, what if 
the actor really doesn't know what's going on and really is genuinely surprised. How does that change it? So we mm-hmm. tried it with Code Red, which is a very talented group of improvisers mm-hmm. here from New York. And it was so – the first time out of the gate was a home run. Right. And I was like, this is, a, this is something. I mean, you mentioned short form uh, earlier. It's very short it's form. It's very short form. Yeah. I, when I host it as an 11 o'clock show, I tell the audience that I took the longest of long forms and I added a short form <laughs> twist right. to, to ruin it in a way. But it's because so, the audience isn't on that. And there's a set game, mm-hmm. but there's something so fun about watching an improviser come on stage, learn what his, the scene he's now in about, and then do the best fucking improv yeah. you can do. Can I swear? Yeah, absolutely. And especially for someone where watching improvisers who are generally in control. Yes. Like knowing that like someone like Hunter Nelson is coming out and has no idea what's going yeah. on and must make that work. My, my favorite improvisers to watch are often the people who would prefer to be lost. Mm-hmm. Zach Willis is somebody who I think is really great at this. Uh, I've seen him do a thousand scenes. They're all great. But the ones where I get the most excited watching him or where he initiates something – his scene partner clearly takes it in a different direction or misinterprets it or makes a mistake. He lights up. Mm-hmm. There's an energy that comes through him. He gets more excited about that scene. It, it's like it's what he wants you to do. It's, he wants yeah. you to break his idea. Yes. So that he really starts improvising. And there are people who respond to that like, oh, you just put a stake down in front of me. Let's just yeah. have fun. And I'm just going to like carve yeah. in. Let's just – we just were given the biggest thing. He, a tiny part of him is now in the audience going, ooh, what's going to happen? But he's doing it. And right. I love watching that. I love feeling that. But it's much easier for me to notice when I see it. Yeah. Because when I'm improvising, I don't think about what's happening. Sure, I do those moves. I hope I do those moves. But I watch people do those moves, and it delights me. So we real door monocene, convergence, macro scene, and the uh, overachiever. overachiever. Right. Yeah, those are the big ones. Are there any that you tried with like code red or with with other people that you realize like this is just a mess this is not going to work out you know nothing jumps to mind and i think the reason i can't think of any that don't work is because since they start with such a small idea they don't start as full forms sure it's rare where i'm like i have this idea for a form and it doesn't Mm -hmm. work it's more like i have an idea for an exercise or for two scenes and if it doesn't work i just don't expand on it and don't explore that idea until it becomes a form Overachiever would have been my biggest guess of something that wouldn't work because uh, it just had too many moving parts. Yeah. But it did. It worked as a class. And there's definitely some, like, the first Convergence was so funny in class. It was pretty good on stage. Mm-hmm. But then we did the second Convergence, and it worked great. Yeah. So sometimes it's, like, that one I needed, I think, to learn a little bit about pacing. Yeah. And Zach helped me teach the second class. I think pacing was the big thing we changed the second that we just sped it up a little bit, and it mm-hmm. worked so much better on stage. And that was Kevin Hines. Improv forms can be simple. We often think of them in terms of limitations. In this form, you are only allowed to edit like this, and so on. That is, I think, good. There are benefits to having no rules at all, and in any improv show, you should be ready to throw everything out if needed. But there are also good reasons to give yourself limitations. It can add fun, surprising twists for you in the audience. You have to kind of work around things that you otherwise wouldn't have to. There are many songwriters who, when writing a new song on the guitar, will first retune their guitar to something other than the standard tuning. When we do something we're used to, we have this tendency to fall into the same patterns, which can be helpful, but can also be stifling. 
By switching the tuning of the guitar, the songwriter can't rely on the same chord shapes that they've trained their fingers to go to, and instead they have to be more conscious about what they're doing, and why. Performing the movie, or the macro scene, or the Laurent, or any number of other forms often feels like that. It takes away some of the tricks we've come to rely on as improvisers. It keeps us on our toes just when we start to feel like we can finally rock back onto our heels. That was episode 15, Forms. After you've worked for a bit on the standard forms, the Herald, the Montage, the Mono Scene, and on basic scene work and game, try to learn some other forms. Having other forms will make you a more versatile player, and you may find that you do some of your best scene work when you're not actually focusing on the scene work. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, and if you have any feedback for me, please send it to improv at curtisrutherford.com. That's C-U-R-T-I-S-R-E-T-H-E-R-F-O-R-D.com. Thanks to everyone who has already done so, and thanks to everyone who is part of this episode. Hi, I'm Lily Dew. I am Chris Scott. Kevin Mullaney. Kevin Hines. And I'm Curtis Rutherford. 